Friends, just a quick word. I wanted to tell you a, a quick personal note. There are so many good things that come from um, General Assembly Week, which is it, it, it's a fellowship of many brothers um, who are elders in the denomination. And we get a lot of important work done as far as um, discussing the business and the priorities of the church, especially in the hierarchy of our court system, which we have in Presbyterianism. But one of my favorite parts is really just meeting and seeing fellow elders again, and particularly men that I've known before or who were teaching elders. Some of um, you know that I was part of another presbytery previously. I was part of New York Presbytery and, and was before that part of North Texas where I was originally ordained. And there are guys who are not here now who were there then, and we get to see each other. And in the process, you get to pray together. You get to talk. You get to encourage one another. You get to hear stories. And sometimes we even get to say, that's not good. It doesn't sound like you're in a good place. And thank you for sharing that because we'll get, we have to figure this out for you. I would encourage you to call again and let's talk through it. So... Um, this passage today that Ethan just read is all about elders and how we relate to elders and how we, elders relate to one another. So in some ways it might sound like, well, it's not for you. It's really just a sermon to elders. But it's actually for all of us in understanding how we relate well to one another in the household of God. That's what Paul is trying to teach Timothy. Remember, Paul's advice is from God to all the churches, not just to the church in Ephesus, wherever God's people are gathered. And it's not just mere suggestions. Paul is saying, these are the priorities God wants for the church. So pay attention. This is how we are supposed to relate. Remember previously we talked about how we're supposed to relate to one another. Treat older men as fathers, younger men as brothers, older women as, uh, as mothers and younger women as sisters. Remember that passage? This continues it and says, you have to understand even how elders relate to one another. And so I would encourage you to listen. Um, one other word. It's not just for elders. There's so much in here that's applicable to us. And listen to this, in honor and accountability to one another even though it's a passage primarily about elders. So let me pray for us as we jump into this text. Lord, I thank You so much for giving us the privilege to come to church today, to worship, to sing songs of praise and adoration to You, to hear the prayers um, for us and for one another through um, Your elders. And Lord, thank You so much for the precious Word for Your Holy Word, which is infallible and inerrant and relevant to us today. Lord, I always want to be able to see Your Son. And I pray that for my own family, but everyone in this room. So Lord, open up our eyes. May Your Spirit enlighten us to understand what You're really trying to say. Lord, let it not be boring to us, but help us to stand in reverence that this is Your Word. And you have it there on purpose, for a reason, for us. 
to understand and to be closer to you and to one another. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's about elders in particular, this passage. And that's why the reflection verse, if you remember, was respect and esteem those who have leadership over you as they have to give an accountable for your souls. Do you realize how difficult it is? I'm sure many of you in our church who've been around, you know, the work of being an elder or a pastor is quite difficult for this reason. It's not just about teaching a Bible study or presenting a sermon, preaching a sermon. It's being held accountable before God for you, your souls, your spirituality, encouraging you, challenging you, correcting you at times. So let me mention a few things, and then I'll give you the kind of the points which really come from the text. But here's what this passage is all about. It's about honoring elders, the discipline of elders, not fun necessarily, carefulness in ordaining correct men to the office of elder, the call to personal holiness amongst elders and pastors, handling church discipline well, and then some comforting realities or comforting thoughts from the Apostle Paul for us if we are faithful in relating to one another this way. And I I would just say a quick word to the officers in the room, elders and deacons alike. There's a lot of serious things here about mutual honor and care and accountability to one another because we are surely leaders under the Great Shepherd. And one day we will be held accountable for all of this. So, previously Paul, in chapter 3, in this book, gave young Timothy... Now, remember the picture, right? Paul is a seasoned pastor, evangelist, missionary, and Timothy is like a son. Timothy is like a beloved son, and he's telling him, as Timothy's been put in charge of the church in Ephesus, Paul has given him many instructions and saying, don't just put any man into the office of elder. Don't just put any man into the office of deacon. Don't just relate any way you want as if everyone's the same. There are instructions given, Timothy, for the church of God. And so previously in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, Paul gave instructions about the qualifications of elders. So I don't need to go into that again. If you have a desire to re-understand or re-look at that, we have a wonderful pamphlet, right Pastor Jeff? About elders and deacons, when we nominate for new elders and deacons, all the qualifications. And it's right there in 1 Timothy 3 and in the book of Titus. But this passage presents, let me say it this way, seven directions that come right out of the text about eldering and pastoring and really about one anothering within the household of God. So let me present those to you and then we'll jump in as fast as we can. First, verse 17 and 18, materially supporting those who labor among you as elders, particularly pastor elders, providing for their material needs. And we'll talk about that. Verse, I mean, secondly, verse 19, how to handle hasty accusations brought against elders. Or let me put it this way, uncorroborated accusations. Because guess what? The more you deal with people, the more they're going to be angry with you. The more that they might have something to say about, well, I didn't like how he did this. And there's accusations all the time. Well, how to handle hasty or unsubstantiated charges against elders. Thirdly, verse 20, how to discipline elders in cases of sin. You know when 
elders go wrong when they sin seriously? When they sin publicly, how do you handle that? Fourthly, verse 21, an unbiased treatment of elders in the church, especially when it comes to discipline. What do I mean by that? Well, when you're doing fellow eldering, sometimes you don't want to step on another elder's toes. But the Bible says no partiality, no favoritism unbiased treatment of elders in in church discipline. Fifthly, verse 22, Paul tells Timothy the danger of prematurely ordaining some to the office of elder. Prematurely setting up men to be elders when they're not qualified or ready. Sixthly, Paul exhorts Timothy to pursue godliness, purity, and holiness in himself. And then seventh direction is Paul encourages Timothy in the hard work of doing proper church discipline in general because everybody knows church discipline is not fun. But it's necessary to cut out cancers or illnesses or wrong things in our lives. And you know, one of the hardest jobs that Jeff and I have to do that I know it's our work to do and all the elders is to say things to you that you need to hear when you need to hear it. It's hard. It's hard confronting. It's hard saying, I see this and it doesn't look okay. And I need you to know it's wrong. Biblically, it's wrong. Relationally, it's wrong. And so, how do you do that without... How do you do that in general? And then, finally, Paul gives Timothy some comforting thoughts and realities if you do these things well. So, I'm going to try to go through this as quickly as I can so you'll understand this. Remember again, it's about elders, but it's really applicable to all of us. All of us, as we think about accountability. I want you to keep that word in mind. True accountability to one another. So, um, Paul's first directive. He says in verses 17 and 18, pastor elders are to be honored by being provided for materially. And it's about the local church making adequate and generous provision for its shepherds. And Paul talks about a double honor. You see that word, those two words, a double honor? He says that they are worthy of a double honor. What does that mean? What, is that, what, is, what are the two things here? Well, first I think it's respect and honor. And the second thing is being provided for materially, being provided for well so that they're not in need with physical needs. And so there is a double honor here. But let me go back to this idea about supporting those who are laboring among you, um, particularly full-time in the ministry of eldering and pastoring. Well, there are many, many churches that don't even believe in paid clergy. They don't believe clergy should be paid, even if they're serving full-time among them and doing the hard work of the ministry. It might be a conviction, but it's actually wrong. And Paul is saying they are to be honored by being provided for materially. And the local church should adequately provide that generously for its shepherd. Why? Why full-time supported ministry? I'll tell you why. Paul's telling us right here in this passage, 1 Timothy chapter 5, as a teaching to young Timothy the pastor and saying, you should do this. Your congregation should do this. You're responsible to do it. They're worthy of it. 
as they labor and work amongst you. Don't count this as something different than another vocation or another kind of job. It is a work amongst you. Let me share a personal remembrance. When I was a young child um, and in my early growing up years in Manhattan within a church plant context, our little church could not afford a full-time pastor. So you know what we used to do? We used to have a pastor visit us from Philadelphia where he lived and he would come once a month and he would do the sacraments and, uh, for us and he would handle counseling situations or discipline situations and kind of take care of the congregation, but it was mostly lay-led. But after a while, as the congregation began to grow, this question began to come to my mind, and I'm sure others too, is why don't we have our own full-time pastor? Well, because they got lazy in not having to pay anybody, and they can care for the needs of the church the other three weeks, and we'll do communion once a month. And Pretty soon, as I started watching this picture, I started realizing that the elders are not being poured into, the leadership is not being poured into, and the ministers themselves were worn out and divided in their energies and their availabilities because they almost all had second jobs. They all had to do other jobs. Our pastor was a physical therapist. And after the 40 hours, he would come and serve the church on the weekends or be able to lead Bible studies, but he was, he, he, I knew he was tired. He had to take care of his own family. He had to do his own job. And then what comes about? Distractions, tiredness, a lower quality of work perhaps even. I began to even notice that. I was thinking he didn't get enough time to work on that. And that's not right. What Paul is telling Timothy is, they are worthy of double honor. Not only respect and honor, but to be cared for materially. Now, I would say, in our denomination, we have some checks and balances there because our presbytery even says, hey, that's too low for that man or his family. You guys as a session, as elders, need to reconsider what this guy is getting or what is adequate for his needs. And so there's some good things that we're doing, but we all can learn from this. So again, the question, Why? Paul tells us very clearly in this passage, this is what's needed. So here's the main principle. The church is responsible to support the laborers who minister there. A couple of side notes, okay? One, in various passages like Acts 20, James 5, 1 Peter 5, Philippians, you always see in the churches that are being set up, according to Paul's teaching and model, that there is more than one elder in every church. We're talking about a multiplicity of elders. A plurality of elders in every church. It's more than one church. And that's why in our denomination, do you guys know that there is a distinction between a new church and an, and an established church? A newly first formed church is first called a mission. Because there's only one elder, the pastor. But he is supposed to take time to train and equip and pour into other men who when they are qualified get brought on along with him and now there is a multiplicity of elders and they can actually form a session of their own and then they do what we call as particularization to become a church instead of a mission that is trying to be established. 
So more than one elder. And then another note. There is an interesting word here because it says the word well. Now notice this. The elders who rule well, Paul says, are to be considered worthy of double honor. Especially, this is what I think it means, those who are working hard at preaching and teaching. There's an evaluation here, friends. Not everyone who says he's a pastor is a pastor. Not everyone who says he's an elder is an elder because some people just want the title. Paul's actually saying, here's the picture I want you to see. A hard worker like a construction worker, like a laborer, like somebody who's actually really, really pouring themselves into the work. Notice the language, indi- the language's indication here of ruling well and the hard work as an elder in God's church. I fear, I fear when men choose to go into the office or desire the office without wanting to do hard work, to rule well. That is dangerous because one day they will have to stand before the Lord. And the Lord's going to say, I entrusted this to you and these people's souls to you. And did you do good work? Did you do hard work? Did you do the labor? And they will be found wanting. So there's an evaluation here of the work of elders, whether it's done well. Third thing, Paul's justification here for those who labor and getting paid adequately, being given the double honor, actually comes from the Old Testament. It's from the law of Moses, and we can call it like an Old Testament case law, but it speaks about fair treatment of animals that you domesticate to work and serve and labor for you. Now think about this. Animals like donkeys or oxen, and this specific example is about oxen. And look how Paul defends us as elders in saying you're worthy of double honor. Look how he defends us. He compares us to an ox. And he says... Don't muzzle the ox while he is threshing. Here's a picture. It's an agricultural picture of grain and an ox trampling on it on the threshing floor until the chaff is separated from the wheat. And then he's saying, these animals who serve and labor for you like this, Don't muzzle them while they're doing this. Allow them to eat a little as they do it. Allow them. They deserve it. It's about kindness. It's about fairness. It's about fair treatment for those that are laboring among you. And so he goes into this Old Testament picture. And I think that there's a lot to be taken here in this double honor. Remember and look at those who are serving and laboring among you. I I can't tell you how many hours your elders put in and diaconate for that matter as well. Do you know that most, most of these men do it after their 40 hours? I have a privilege that I get to do it full time. And it's often 50, 60, 70 hours or more, right, Jeff? But there are brothers here who are doing it after their jobs. And I know how hard that is. I recognize 
that you're sacrificing. I recognize that you're tired. And the last thing you want to do is go into a confronting, confrontational counseling situation or be able to do a hospital visit when you're just exhausted and you need to get ready for the next day or go to a session meeting. I know. But they are worthy. They're worthy of double honor. Because the Scriptures so clearly show us an example here. The other note that I want you to see here is Paul actually says... You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. Remember Old Testament? But then he has this other line, and the labor is worthy of his wages. Where does that come from? Do you realize that that is not an Old Testament line? He's quoting Luke 10. The Apostle Paul, at this stage in church history, in the time of the early church, is quoting Old Testament Mosaic law, and he's also quoting Luke 10, Jesus' words in the Gospel, and says, this is the Scriptures. For Scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So, recognize that even at this time, Paul is, Paul is recognizing the Gospels to be the Scripture. Jesus' words to be Scripture for the church. So, pastor elders are to be cared for as they devote their primary energies for the local body. That's the first thing. Just recognize that. Hey, remember the other week I mentioned a, a note that I got? Maybe you should do that for some of your officers and those who are ministry leaders among you. Maybe you should say thank you. You're worthy of honor. Thank you for all the time and energy you've spent for me. Secondly, second point, verse 19. Uncorroborated charges against a pastor elder should not be entertained. And remember I gave you an example. It's so easy to get accusations when you're spending a ton of time with people. Sometimes you have to say the uncomfortable things and sometimes they don't want to hear it. And sometimes they'll walk out on you and then before you know it, there's an accusation made. Well, he said it this way to me. Or he shouldn't have gone there. And you know what Paul's saying? Paul's saying that shouldn't even be entertained. If it's coming from one person, it should not even be entertained against an elder who has been established by God through His people to be an elder and shepherd over the church. It should not be entertained in that way. There's supposed to be a due process. And it again goes back to the Old Testament law, the Old Testament civil law where it says you had to have a witness. And Paul is really appealing to that, that same principle and saying there should be several witnesses if you're going to say anything against an elder or an officer. And so you have to be very, very wise and discerning as these things are brought up. Um... Do you recognize, friends, that this is to the first century church? <laughs> that Paul is actually telling and spelling this out to the church in Ephesus? Where Paul knows that young Timothy is probably going to have accusations against him and darts thrown against him and other elders. You know what you walk away realizing? The church was not perfect then and the church is not perfect now. Even right then, just 
30 years since the ascension of Jesus, Paul is telling Timothy, beware of this, beware of accusations, don't even entertain uncorroborated accusations about an elder, which means this is what's happening even then. So I want you to hear this, friends. The church on earth here, and you know this experientially, right? It's not perfect. Your elders aren't perfect. Your pastors aren't perfect. Guess what? You're not perfect. You have limitations and weaknesses and can lose your temper and be impatient in all these things. We should be realistic about the church in the midst of a broken world and realize that the local church is never perfect or without issues here on the earth. One day, the church triumphant will be perfect. But right now, we're sinners living with each other. Don't forget that that the fall has impacted the church on earth as well. And Paul is really, what he's doing here is giving us a reality check. He says, be careful how you talk to one another, how you accuse one another. Okay, third point, verse 20. Pastors and elders who fall into serious sin issues are to be corrected publicly and not hidden. Elders are to be disciplined too. I'm, I'm going to skip over a lot of my notes in this, but, but, but say this. What I just said before about wrong accusations and without two witnesses or three witnesses, but the other part is true. We are fallible and we can make mistakes. That's why I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful for Presbyterianism. Not that it's the most perfect thing in the world. It isn't. Listen, we've seen the underbelly. It's not nice either. There's a lot of junk there too. But I'm so thankful that the model is as biblical as it possibly can be here on earth. And Paul says that public chastening and rebuke are necessary in such cases of serious sin by pastors and elders. You know what he's saying to Timothy? Don't don't soften it. Don't hide it. Don't ignore it. Don't soft-pedal when another elder is astray or not doing what he's supposed to be doing or sinning. Don't pretend like it's not there. Don't overlook it. No, Timothy, is what Paul is really saying. And in some ways, I want to tell you, it's really reassuring. Because I think I could screw up a lot. I think I can mess up the church. I think I can mess up elders. I think we could always lead people astray because we're fallible men. And it's reassuring to know that there is a accountability amongst one another so that if I do something wrong, that it can be brought up. It can be told to the rest of the congregation. And notice this. There's a line in there that says, so that the rest will be fearful of sinning. So that the rest, who is the rest? Most likely the rest of the elders, the other officers, but maybe even the rest of the congregation. So it's saying, do this publicly. Warn. Correct. By the way, this is so hard to say, but I want you to do that to me if I'm not teaching the Scriptures or I'm talking about things, Jeff and I, if we're going astray, Correct us. So there's a public recognition so all others can see the danger of such sinful actions. Because the Lord is holy and wants His church to be holy and will discipline those He loves. So there is a public 
chastening coming and it should be feared if we continue to sin. Listen, I want to share with you another example. I remember, this is one of the harder things of presbytery. Several times in my own time as pastor over the last 27 years where there have been brothers who have been brought up to the presbytery and have been rebuked, corrected, admonished, and sometimes even demoted of their office. And it's quite sobering. And there are times when I've sat there and I thought, God help me to never do that because that looks painful. But there is a bigger reason, isn't there? It's not just to avoid public humiliation. It's so that we can be holy and so that the church can be holy and so that we don't get away with things just because I'm the pastor or just because we're the elders. Constructive, godly, peer accountability and pressure is helpful for us. And it's good for us as officers to be aware that we're capable of falling into temptations and serious sin patterns without accountability. Okay, fourthly, I'm going to run through the rest somewhat quickly. Maintain proper discipline without favoritism and bias, without any partiality. I mentioned this before, but listen, if a fellow elder sins, I don't have the right to say, but I like that guy, and he's been here 30 years. Without partiality, Timothy. Without bias. Without favoritism. And he says, do not have bias in the area of church discipline towards an elder. Don't cower, don't soft pedal, don't ignore, don't make light of serious sin of fellow elders. And you're supposed to correct them and teach them and help them come back on track. By the way, in our own presbytery, that's been done too where men have gone through a discipline process and a correction process and they've been taken under wing and they've been restored back to the work of the ministry, back to preaching the gospel, back to counseling others. And then there's this line. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of His chosen angels to maintain these principles. You know what he's saying? There will be a day when we're standing in the throne room and you're going to see the elders bowing down and the holy angels and the throne room of God with the Lamb of God there. But do you recognize that He is watching us even now? Do you realize that His presence and His eye is upon us even now? You're in the presence of God and His holy angels even now, and it's not just the local church that's watching. It's God Himself. And that should help us. It should help us. All right. Fifthly, don't appoint a man to office too hastily. I think this is somewhat easy to understand, but let me say it another way. Don't lay hands on a man to ordain him too quickly just because you need a warm body. It's okay to be a mission church for three years or five years or six years until you have the right and qualified man or men in that position who loves God's Word and loves Christ and will do the right things without favoritism and bias and say the things that he needs to do and teach the right things. You don't just... This happens, by the way. 
get men into the office so that you can form the session and so you can be particularized and look good in front of your presbytery and be a church? I would say no. I would say follow Paul's example. Let's be a mission until we have enough evidence for a man's life. Timothy is being taught to be scrupulously fair in the area of church discipline here. And now saying, don't appoint a man to the office too hastily. Paul's already done this in chapter 3 when he talked about the qualifications. So what does this mean? You watch a man's life. You look at how he holds his family. You watch how he understands Christian doctrine. Is there sufficient evidence of Christian maturity and leadership? Full of stories today, so I'm going to share one more. When I was a church planter, there was a young man who previously was set into leadership, and I inherited him as we kind of took on a core group. And I quickly realized this man is not qualified. He's not qualified for spiritual leadership, nor to be an elder, nor to be a deacon. And I had to take him aside and say, I want you to know that what we've just gone through, which was unpleasant, it's difficult, but it's good for you because you need some time. You need some years of getting with other men and learning the Word better. And, and so, listen, you don't, we don't quickly appoint such people to spiritual office. Otherwise, Paul says it's like sharing in the sins of others. Isn't that interesting? So if we do that too quickly, it's as if there is a corporate accountability. All of us as elders, all of us as pastor teachers, all of us as a session that we are responsible for that one man who's not qualified and who's leading people astray. We're responsible for the men that we ordain and install into office. We're responsible for one another. Everyone's sin affects the whole congregation. This is where it's applicable to all of us. Do you ever think, well, one person, what, what impact will that do? There is a ripple effect for every single person in the church on one another. On the well-being of our congregation, on the health of our congregation, on the holiness of our congregation. So you do the loving things of interaction and, and correction and restoration. Why? Why are we all connected that way? Because of our union with Christ. I'm going to leave that. If you want to understand more about union with Christ, with Christ talk to Colton. He's done a couple of good lessons for the youth and others. I'm saying that's somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but you need to understand that. We are so connected to one another in our union with Christ that we impact one another here because of the communion of the saints. Sixthly, a call for pastor elders to purity and godliness. You know what Paul's saying to Timothy? You need to be holy and godly first, Timothy. You need to have personal godliness. I'm going to share one of my favorite quotes of all time by a godly man who's now in heaven named Robert Murray McShane. Some of you have heard that name because you have McShane's Bible reading plan, which goes through the whole Bible. But McShane has this incredible quote that I've learned when I was a young man. And it goes like this. My people's greatest need is my own personal holiness. My people's, my congregation's greatest need is my own personal holiness. So Paul's telling Timothy, listen, 
Watch your own heart. Are you devoted to the Lord? Are you spending time with the Lord? Are you praying? Are you reading Scripture? Are you getting with others in fellowship? Your personal holiness is absolutely necessary, Timothy. And then there's this really interesting little thing about wine, which I'm sure you don't want to you don't want me to skip over. Paul's advice to Timothy, he just has this little kind of excursus for a moment and, and he says, um, no longer drink water exclusively, Timothy, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach. Now, I, I don't know why Timothy may not have been using wine. Maybe he actually was an abstainer. Maybe he didn't drink like others didn't, like John the Baptist. But remember where he is. He's in Ephesus. Drinking water from the aqueducts of Ephesus. Maybe he's drinking unboiled water. Maybe he's getting sick. Actually, we know that Timothy was someone who had a weak constitution and who frequently got sick. And so listen to what Paul says here, which sounds like something that doesn't fit here, but he's actually saying this, I care about you physically as much as I care about you spiritually. Because there's work to do. Drink a little wine instead of that water that's making you sick. Because the wine is probably going to help his stomach more. And Paul really cares, cares about this young man and saying, I don't just want you to be godly spiritually for your soul. I want you to be healthy physically. To be a good elder in the church. To live long. To impact the church long term. Let me move on. Finally, the seventh direction is this. Be encouraged in the hard work of eldering and caring for one another and remain faithful because church discipline is hard. It's one of the most difficult parts of being a spiritual leader. But if you're faithful in it, continue in it, do it. It's hard work and often overwhelming and not always clear on what's best to do. You know why? Because sometimes you have to figure out, did this person do this? Did this person not do this? Is it fair? Is it not fair? Is it lenient too much? Is it too harsh? You don't know, right? But Paul's saying, but you got to do it. Got to do church discipline. Continue in it. Do the hard work and be encouraged in that, young Timothy. You know, Timothy may have been really overwhelmed because of a lot of the older men and women in his congregation, but Paul's really challenging him him here. My last thing, I'm going to share this. I know there is a lot here, but I wanted to unfold it for you. And the last thing is this. If you are faithful, there are some real comforting truths and realities that Paul ends this passage with. Listen to this. First of all, he says, the sins of some are obvious. So if you're faithful in doing the work you're supposed to do, if you're faithful in confronting, if you're faithful in doing encouragement and doing church discipline, the sins of some are obvious. It's plain. It's like crystal clear stuff in front of you what needs to be disciplined. And so relax a little. Some of it's going to be clear for the rest of the congregation. Secondly, some sins of some people will be found out eventually. It'll come out. Because that's who this person really is. He may be tricking you as pastor, but it will come out eventually. And it will be known. Thirdly, goodness will outshine evil and prevail. Thirdly, Paul says, the good character of a man will be obvious. You know, there are people who get accusations, right? 
but the good always outshines the evil, and their good character will be known. It will come out, and you'll know that man is worthy of double honor because his goodness outshines the evil. And lastly, evil cannot hide and also will eventually show itself and convict itself. Eventually, bad character and bad behavior can't be hidden. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes this book called Life Together. I think some of you have read it in your community groups or maybe you've come across it in your Christian life. I'm going to end with this challenge to you. Life together means honoring one another, holding each other accountable, spending time with one another according to God's instructions for us and not what we want to do whichever way we want to do it. Life together in the church means that we are people of high grace and not cheap grace. That we take God's truth seriously and that we love one another to speak truth from God's Word to one another and hold each other accountable. And that's how, that's how we'll be a healthy church. Let me pray for us. Father, I just thank you for all the good things that are here for officers, but even for us, Lord, how we are really actually responsible for one another. Lord, how we're going to be held accountable for one another. How holiness and godliness matter. And that we're called to hard work and one day you will make all things clear and known. Thank you, Father, that you are the head of the church and that you will provide for your church. We love you and we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.